You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mole Day, Year 12, of the Life Underground, spoken by Adam One. Dear friends, dear fellow mammals, dear fellow creatures, I point no fingers, for I know not where to point, but as we have just seen, malicious rumors can spread confusion. A careless remark can be as the cigarette butt casually tossed into the dumpster, smoldering until it bursts into flame and engulfs a neighborhood. Do guard your words in future. It is inevitable that certain friendships may lend themselves to undue comment. But we are not chimpanzees. Our females do not bite rival females. Our males do not jump up and down on our females and hit them with branches. Or not, as a rule, All pair bondings are subject to stress and temptation, but let us not add to that stress, nor misinterpret that temptation. Today we celebrate Mole Day, our festival of underground life. Mole Day is a children's festival, and our children have been busily at work decorating our Edencliff rooftop garden. The moles with their little claws fashioned from hair combs the nematodes fashioned from transparent plastic bags, the earthworms of stuffed pantyhose and string, the dung beetles. What a testimony to our God-given powers of creativity through which even the useless and discarded may be redeemed from meaninglessness. Margaret Atwood is the author of more than 40 books of fiction, poetry, and critical essays. Her novel Oryx and Crake was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Giller Prize. Her novel The Handmaid's Tale won the first Arthur C. Clarke Prize. She's the author of The Blind Assassin and Alias Grace, which won the Giller Prize in Canada and the Premio Mondello in Italy. Her other books include The Robber Bride, Cat's Eye, The Penelope Ed, and The Tent. Thank you for joining me, Margaret. A pleasure. Margaret, uh, this is a book in which you have fashioned in a way that many uh, authors of speculative fiction have, from L. Ron Hubbard to (laughs) Robert Heinlein. You've manufactured your own religion in this book, haven't you? Well, not quite in the same way that L. Ron Hubbard did. (laughs) I don't have any adherents yet. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet, but um, who knows? Uh, yes, it is a re- an own religion, and I believe something like it is heading our way. And um, indeed, we now have the Green Bible among us, which I did not know when I was writing this book, which has tasteful linen covers, ecologically correct paper, the green parts in green, introduction by Archbishop Tutu, and a, a list at the end of useful things you can do to be a more worthy green person. So it is coming, but these this group, which is called the God's Gardeners, has taken it possibly to an extreme that not everybody will will be able to do. They live on uh, a rooftop. They live on rooftops and slums on which they have vegetable gardens and they keep bees. And they are strictly vegetarian unless you get really, really hungry 
in which case you have to start at the bottom of the food chain and work up. And they make everything out of recycled cast-offs and junk. So they're quite strict. And they have their own saints' days, and they have their own festivals. Uh, not quite the same as the standard saints' calendar, but there is some overlap. St. Francis appears on both. Uh, you have a lot of fun with with your religion. Um, partly, but partly I just felt that there were some people who ought to be recognized as saints because they are quite saintly. <laughs> yes, well, well, tell us about, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the saints that you've created for... for... Well, St. Rachel Carson, for instance, really quite important, and, and she went through a lot of trials and tribulations uh, as a result of her book, The Silent Spring. There was a lot of opposition to her, from petrochemical companies of the time, but she turns out to have been right. Uh, some people are included for reasons you might not think of. For, for instance, Robert Burns is a saint uh, because of uh, interspecies cooperation and empathy. He's a mice, He's saint of mice. Saint Robert Burns of mice, and I do remind you that Apollo, amongst the Greeks, was, was the god of mice, among other things. So there are precedents these. And we have a number of American ones. Al Gore in the future will be a saint. You'll be happy to know. And um, Not everybody will be. <laughs> not everybody will be. Ewell Gibbons is a saint. I always quite fancied him in any case. And he is the saint of wild foods. And that proves to be a pertinent saint in, in this yes, world. Yes, I think it's something we should all be very aware of. I was stuck on an island once where the ferry service had failed, and it was early spring, and and uh, food was running short, and I, I did go up and dig up the dandelions off the lawn. And right then, the vulture migration passed through, so I had all of these vultures <laughs> sitting around watching me do that, wondering whether when I was going to just fall over. So it's handy things to know. Uh, this book is a is a not exactly a sequel of sorts to Oric and Crake. It, it, you've taken, I think, a really interesting approach to the series. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, another literary writer, Lawrence Durrell, who experimented in science fiction. The, the Alexandria Quartet told the same series of events from different perspectives, and his books Tonka Nunquam, which were his mm. science fiction novels, did as well. Could you talk about creating this series? When you wrote Oryx and Crake, did you have the Year of the Flood in mind? I didn't have it in mind exactly when I was writing it, but I had it in mind just about as soon as I'd finished it, because everybody started asking me, all right, um, what happens three minutes after the end of the book? <laughs> <laughs> and also, they said, why didn't you write it from the point of view of women? Having asked me for years, why do you always write from the point of view of a woman? So as soon as I wrote a whole book from the point of view of a man, the question just flipped over. Uh, so I wanted to see what was in um, Meanwhile Back at the Ranch, if you like, or in another part of the forest, you know, those parts in novels and plays where you're viewing the same time frame but through different people. Uh, and then typically those two groups of people come together at the end. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the backdrop uh, of both these novels. It's our world, and one of the things that interests me about science fiction and speculative fiction is that 
there's a real tendency to think that because it's set in the future or set on another planet or set in another time in another galaxy, wherever it's set, there's a tendency to think that that's what it's about. But science fiction is never about the future. It's always about the present. It's always about us because that is our subject matter. And even when you're writing a piece of historical fiction, even when you're writing, for instance, about Henry VIII and his six wives, uh, you're still going to be seeing that through the lenses of the present day. You, you, can't, you can't really help that. So 1984 was famously 1948 backwards. And um, a lot of the sort of gritty, grungy stuff in it was immediately post-war Britain. So that's, that's just always been uh, true about those kinds of books. Sometimes they do contain a vision of what things might be like, but it is a vision colored by, um, for instance, Will, William Morris's um, view that things should be handicrafts and there should be lots of trees and flowers. So in, in News from Nowhere, of course, there are lots of handicrafts and <laughs> trees and flowers. So it, it is whatever is preoccupying us that tends to get into these kinds of stories. And Ursula Le Guin, for instance, has written a lot of rearrangements of genders, mm. uh, which was a very um, preoccupying topic in the years in which she was uh, writing those those stories and and novels. So what is preoccupying uh, me, of course, is the fact that we have just opened the biggest toy box in the world, which is the ability to uh, transfer genetic material from one species to another. And we are busily at play with that toy box right now. Uh, one of the things you say in here is that we're all in the midst of a huge uncontrolled experiment, which yeah. I really love that perception. Well, it is unfortunately <laughs> true, and not all of it comes from gene splices. Some, mm -hmm. some of it comes just from uh, animals and plants getting into an environments that were not originally theirs and where they have no predators. Alien species transported in the hulls of ships. And... Oh, exactly. So the... the um, termites that are eating uh, New Orleans are a foreign termite. Uh, the zebra mussels in Lake Erie and Lake Ontario came in from the Black Sea. The cane toads in Australia were unfortunately somebody who thought they would be a good idea. Uh, they always think it's a good of, idea. <laughs> well, if they do it on purpose, they think that. Uh, it, but it can e as easily be done by accident. Mm. You know, it just gets in. There's no it has no enemies, conditions are, are right, and it explodes. There's a really interesting book called uh, 1491, mm, mm. which is about what the Americas were like the instant before Columbus set foot on them. Of course, the instant after he did, all of the d diseases came in, and in a lot of cases, the mortality rate was, was 100%. You know, people were just wiped out. But one of the things that then happened was that cultivated species escaped from their gardens and ran wild for a while until uh, their natural predators found them. But there were apparently fields of, of artichokes <laughs> just, <laughs> just growing like huge plains full of them, if you can imagine at one point. So things get out. Things get out of the box. I think that's the 
That's the short form of the story. It's interesting that you have uh, feature uh, gene splice in your book called a raccoonk, which is a raccoon and a skunk. I think it would be quite a good idea. Not all gene splices are bad ideas. Some of them are quite good. They're working right now on more drought-resistant crops, mm-hmm. which are very needed. So that that would get a thumbs up. But any any of our sciences and technologies are, are human tools. Mm. And we only ever invent things that fit onto our human smorgasbord. So those can be things we want, or they can be defenses against things we fear, but they're never things that an intelligent spider might invent. No, no. Just today I read about a woman who was filleted by raccoons. Deary me. Yes. <laughs> she tra- she went to try to shoo a family out and stumbled, and there were five or six of them, and they went after her and seriously injured her. So it's it's they, these things. So they mobbed her. As they mobbed were. her, yes. Goodness gracious. Uh, well, raccoons can be quite dangerous animals, mm. but if you blend them with a skunk, which is a very docile and, and friendly creature, it, it can afford to be because of its smell defense. Mm. But if you, revo- if you remove the smell defense from the skunk and blend it with the raccoon, you'll get a playful and lively but not aggressive animal that doesn't stink. So how good could that be? You hope. <laughs> <laughs> you might get a highly aggressive animal with a with You might a get a highly aggressive <laughs> You could that, get that too, but we'll hope that they solve that part. One of the things I think that's very interesting in this book is um, the God's Gardener's attempts to reconcile science and religion. Now, this is something that we right now are having a huge problem with. Well, I think it's because people want to guard their own potato patches. Mm. And instead of worrying about their power over their own potato patch, they should really turn their gaze elsewhere to the problems that the planet is facing. Mm. And I think some people in religious groups are doing that. Uh, And that is heartening to see because it means they're thinking about something other than themselves. Uh, But as anybody who's worked or been around Uh, science and particularly biology knows, a lot of the people doing that kind of work, especially work with species near extinction, Jane Goodall has just written a book about this called, name I can't remember, but you'll find it easily on the web, and it's about bringing endangered species back from the brink. They don't do it out of cold, hard science, you know, objectivity. They do it out of, for emotional reasons. They, they, they love the natural world. They love the animals in it. And you have to say to creationists, you know, if you, if you really do believe that this world was divinely created, why aren't you helping to save it? You know, what's your problem with that concept? Well, so my group is, you know, that is their whole, mm-hmm. that's where they're coming from. But they don't take the uh, rather absurd time frame of 4,000 years. They have other scriptural interpretations actually supported in the Bible. God's time is not our time, etc. It's really, that that's the, a fascinating uh, rap that he does. Yeah, well, and that the creation is ongoing. That's mm-hmm. also in, in the Bible, too. So people are sometimes accused of cherry-picking the Bible. Well, everybody cherry-picks the Bible <laughs> because there's so much in it that is self-contradictory, unless you do. Well, one of the things you're 
Adam says is that when you find something that in truth contradicts what you read in the Bible, you have to go with what's true. Now, this is something that St. Augustine said as well back in yep. the 13th century, so yes, it's not it's necessarily new. respectable theological position, mm-hmm. but the view to take usually is that, all right, the thing in the Bible, which a lot of the Bible is metaphor and poetry, mm-hmm. cannot be denied, the thing of in the Bible is not to be interpreted interpreted literally in that case, but but in a more extended fashion. Sure, yeah. As you say, the Bible is poetry and to be read as poetry. Well, some of it's poetry. Yeah. Some of it isn't, and this is this is the problem. Which is which? <laughs> <laughs> now. Um, You've created a, a really uh, stratified and, and isolated kind of society in the in Oryx and Crake and Year of the Flood. Describe that to us and how you come to that. And because in a way, that's not that different from what we have right now. It's it's our world pushed a bit further. Mm. So in this world of the future, and you've just seen uh, with the influx of government money into businesses, you've just seen those things coming closer together. You don't really want government and corporations being the same, but in the future they are. And they have their own uh, police, secret police force, which is called the Corps Corps for Corporation Security Corps. And they are attending to things that make money, basically, for them. And um, they don't bother much with law enforcement that doesn't have to do with that. They leave other kinds of things to uh, criminal mobs as long as they get a cut. (laughs) So it's a pretty corrupt future society. But in it, of course, the corporations have retreated to the castle position. The castle position is put a wall around yourself, um, abandon public space, and defy anybody to get through that wall or to leave it if you don't want them to. So they've become super-gated communities to guard against industrial espionage and other people stealing their commercial ideas. So there's a certain amount of brainiac kidnapping going on (laughs) in the world of the future. And um, the elite live in these establishments, which are called compounds. And the pattern is a very old one. It's the castle pattern. It's the compounds in India um, pattern. If you are afraid of what's out there, you put up a wall. Stay inside. The elite live in there. That's where Jimmy grew up. He wasn't very good at being an elite, but he was one. Let, let, let a protected life. Outside, we have everything from soup to nuts, including the trading establishments where the um, products of the future are bought and sold. We have rich people living out there, and every gradation down to the down to the very slummiest of slums. In the very slummiest of slums, we have the gardeners, the God's gardeners who want to get outside of the whole money structure and also outside of the whole technological structure because they know, as we ought to know, that you can be spied on through your phone (laughs) (laughs) and through your computer and through any device that has that kind of element in it. You can be spied on through your credit card. So they don't want any of that, and they opt out of it. Their kids are taught using slates and chalk, which can be rubbed off. 
and uh, they go a lot. They go in a lot for memorizing, therefore. And they make everything out of recycleds and junk, and they grow their own food as much as possible. Some of it they trade at their Tree of Life natural materials exchange fairs. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think you do very well with these two books is because you plunge us immediately and without any as you know, Bob, uh, <laughs> exposition. As you know, Bob, the world is this way because. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I've read a lot of uh, these kinds of books through the, through the years, mm. uh, starting in the 19th century. And the as you know, Bob part is always a problem. It's I always call a- it the tour of the sewage lagoon. <laughs> as you know, Bob, <laughs> in your... <laughs> In your blighted and misguided society, this would be the 19th century version, you had a big problem with sewage, but we've solved that, as you know, in the future by having a system that works like this, exposition of the system. And it's hard to get around those big blobs of factual exposition. So one tries one's best not to have blocks of prose that are, as you know, Bob, by not doing that, what you do is you, um, and it's appropriate, especially for a year of the flood, you use revelation as a plot driver because we're reading just to find out what the heck is going on in this world. <laughs> what is what is it? We know this is our world, but it's, something's happened. So I think this is a really unique way to structure a book, to structure it so that part of the plot driver is the, the setting itself. It's partly that, but it's partly just a very, very old way of structuring the plot, which is that of the Iliad. Mm. Now, you come into it with Achilles sulking in his tent. Okay, how did he get into that tent? (laughs) Why is he sulking? (laughs) What happened? And who are all of these other people? And then you get a lot of uh, parts fitted together, and then you get to the point where he comes out of his tent, and on we go with the story of the fall of Troy. So you throw the reader into it in the middle rather than starting uh, once upon a time. There was the apple of discord. and <laughs> <laughs> That's a long book. <laughs> it's a long book. So you flash back to the apple of discord. You know, if only the goddess of discord had not tempted, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> well, you actually do get the apple of discord in here somewhere, don't you? <laughs> I think it's in there. Yeah, it's in there. All right. It's in the it's in the Pollination Day mm-hmm. uh, Gardener Festival in which they're talking about apples and and what was the fruit of knowledge? What was the fruit of knowledge? Not a pomegranate. A, not a plum. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, as <clears throat> I, what I want curious about is when you went in and started writing uh, Oryx and Craig, did you just start with the first phrase and kind of work your way into the world, or did you have a vision of the world? With Oryx and Craig, I had um, more or less a, a distant vision of its structure. Mm, okay. So I think of it as like one of those Italian hill towns that you see from a distance, and it has a shape. And then you go there, and you go into the town, and then you are confronted with a lot of winding streets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I did have a distant vision of it, and then I had to go through the winding streets in order to actualize that shape. 
year of the flood has a similar structure, really, but gives us... Well, we start with the two female characters, Mm -hmm. one of whom, and both of them have been associated with the gardeners in the past, neither of them on purpose. Mm. So Toby has taken refuge among the gardeners because her life was in danger outside that group. And she is a reluctant gardener. She doesn't really... Uh, say that she can believe all of the things they believe, but she works her way into it and ends up by rising in their hierarchy and becoming a full Eve because the people at the top of this uh, group are called Adams and Eves, and they're essentially the teachers and planners and theologians of the group. So she finds herself in that position. Uh, Wren has been her pupil in the gardener's school and she got there because her mother ran away with one of the gardeners leaving the elite compounds and ending up inside this group not very happily so we have a reluctant child and we have a reluctant woman both of whom have been with the gardeners but who at the beginning of the book uh, the pandemic plague has swept through, a lot of people are dead. Toby has seen it coming and has locked herself into the Anew You Spa, where she's been working as a manager. And Wren has grown up from being a child gardener, and she is uh, in the quarantine zone at a government-owned sex club called Scales and Tails, Health Benefits and Pension Plan. Uh, (laughs) She's... (laughs) in the quarantine section because she got bitten by a client and uh, they're waiting to see if she if her tests are clear because they have they're quite phobic about germs in the in the future and as, well they should be as we will all shortly <laughs> become <laughs> um you know uh, i've just been reading a number of books where pandemics sweep the globe and as they have done before yes and there's a lot of um back writing going on about it, too. This book called 1491 uh, is an extreme example in which all the European diseases swept through native North American populations, often with 100%. But there's there's a lot of black death writing around at the moment. Mm. Noticed a number of books on, on it. And I have my little collection, my little library of black death books. <laughs> and what interests me, of course, is how people behave under those conditions. Mm-hmm. How do we behave when we're confronted with something like that? So it's happened before. There is speculation that it's happened a number of times in, in prehistory. Mm-hmm. And um, populations have found themselves under attack by something they know not what, which is, which is killing people, and they don't know what to do about it. So it's a subject that's it's, it's a long one in human history. The, the destruction of Sennacherib, there's a number of ones in the Bible where mm-hmm. these plagues actually determine the outcomes of, of battles and, and sieges. As, as it did during uh, many times. Many times. Yeah. The big killer in wars is usually diseases. It's not wounds or, or deaths on the field. It's, it's things like... Um, typhus and typhoid and cholera that get going and go through the go through the troops for a, a world that is 
decimated, uh, separated. The human world. A human world. Natural world, on the other hand, is doing just fine. Right. Well, for a book where, you know, humanity is pretty much in the toilet. <laughs> as far as we know, once the communication systems go down, of course, you don't actually know who's sure. in the toilet and who isn't. I think the ma- the monks on top of Mount Athos are probably doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a book where things look fairly bleak, one of the things I really enjoyed about this is it's awfully funny. Well, I apologize for that. <laughs> My only excuse is London during the Blitz, uh, a time of rather... Um, complicated humor, but a time of humor nonetheless. Oh, tell tell me a little more about that, what you mean. London during the Blitz. Well, here was London. The bombs were falling. You might wake up in the morning to find that the house next door to you just wasn't there uh, or that your best friend had been killed or that your... I mean, the death rate was pretty high and the destruction was quite widespread. But the amount of, of cheeriness was quite remarkable. In fact, people often find um, desperate situations quite energizing. Mm-hmm. I think it calls upon that something in us which says, I can get through this, and that's probably part of the human toolkit. Uh, so I, I think we have that those capabilities and that they are called out by uh, challenging situations. I was in London in 1970 when they had both an electricity strike and a garbage strike at the same time. People were remarkably cheery and helpful. It's quite astonishing. And they went around saying, oh, it's just like the war. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) got to say, you're the flub. There's a whole lot of maggots in that book. There's some maggots, <laughs> some of them helpful maggots. In fact, they're all pretty helpful. They're all helpful. Yes. You you like maggots. I not, don't feel too cozy towards them, but maggot therapy for infected wounds is, mm-hmm. in fact, more effective than antibiotics, and it has been brought back in med- medical practice today. Mm-hmm. He used it in, in First World War. It had fallen out of favor. It was an old therapy that fell out of favor because people discover things like carbolic acid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the maggots are actually pretty good if you put them into an infected wound because they eat up the infection, including the microbes that are causing the infection. You, the only thing you have to watch is that you stop them right at the moment when the infection is all eaten up because you don't want them continuing on into healthy tissue. No, no, no. You want to scoop them out and, and turn them to. into land shrimp. <laughs> Well, there is a survival lesson here. If all lipids, you know, if you've run Mm -hmm. out of lipids and the human body needs a certain amount of fat Mm -hmm. to keep going, you will start digesting your body if you you don't have it. That's bad. It's bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your heart is a muscle. You'll You'll start digesting your muscles and your heart is a muscle. That's why so many anorexics die of heart failure. Hmm. Um, So you're going to need to get some some lipids from somewhere, and grubs and maggots are a pretty good source of those. Well, Cooked or not. Cooked or not cooked. <laughs> um, lightly fried. Light, lightly fried. I think she's sautéing them in the top of a, she a pan. She's sautéing them on the top of a, one, of those ca- one of those little hobo stoves that are very efficient fuel-wise. You've got a, you've got a sort of a big tomato juice tin, and you put a little 
um, ventilation hole at the top and a hole at the bottom where you put in the twigs. And you can fry something remarkably quickly on that. You're pretty much a survivalist here. You're not packing a rifle, are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'll never tell. (laughs) Um, Your characters do, however, and... One of the things well, that of course, rifles has have been banned when the Corporation Security Corps has mm-hmm. taken over because they don't actually want anybody to have weapons except themselves. So a lot of people have done what a lot of people would do. They've wrapped up their rifles in ammunition and well-oiled plastic bags and buried them in the backyard. <laughs> so, so as soon as things go to hell, excuse me for using that word on the radio. As soon as things start falling apart, uh, there is a certain amount of digging up of rifles in the backyard. Mm. And, and Corpsicores uh, reminded me a lot of Blackwater. All I could think of was Blackwater. Well, it may alarm you to know that there are more private security people in the United States right now than there are public, publicly funded police. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty alarming. I'm with you on that. Mostly they just guard their own corporations right now. But Mm -hmm. think of what what if they amalgamated? Well, it might just, some future president might decide that's a lot cheaper to deal with. Uh, We just had one who did just make that decision. Yeah. And didn't work out so well. Well, the problem is that you lose accountability Mm. to the public. One of the things that that, uh, interests me a lot about about your future is uh, the idea of uh, the, the art that Amanda does. I love Amanda's art. So tell us a little bit about that. Do you, do you know somebody who does that yet? Do I know somebody who does that yet? I don't think I know anybody who does quite that, mm-hmm. but they probably will soon. Mm. And Amanda makes bio art. Essentially, she's making art that has a living entity component. And then she films the art as it goes through its bioform cycle. And the film of the art is therefore the art, if you like. And one of the things she's doing is she's making giant, she's spelling out giant words with cow bones, uh, which she then covers with a, a sugar substance so that Oh, you can get them covered with insects, and then you can watch, you can watch the words change and morph uh, as the bioform element changes. And she starts by writing words with honey and watching the ants eat them, <laughs> as in eat your words. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that that's a a really nice kind of layered plot point. Uh, because you move around in time in this book a lot and put stuff that happens before. So there's a great scene where we already know what Amanda has done in the past, in the future. And then we see as her. As a grown-up. Yeah, as a yeah. grown-up. And then we see her as a kid doing this. And you think, wow, that's where that comes from. It's a really, as a reader, that's a really pleasing point to come upon. Could you talk about creating those? Because this book is just literally filled with them. And in fact, one of the things that's interesting, I mean, Year of the Flood, to me, I mean, Orcs and Crake was a, was a wonderful book. Year of the Flood makes Orcs and Crake a much better book. Well, that's interesting to hear. It gives it, one hopes, another dimension. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the, the relationship with words is, of course, quite 
uh, problematic for a number of people within mm-hmm. this world. Jimmy is a is a wordsmith. It's what he's good at. Mm-hmm. There's not much call for it in the world of the scientific elite, but he's good at it, and he makes a point of trying to rescue obsolete words. So he's got them in his head, mm-hmm. all these words that nobody uses anymore, but he knows what they mean. It gives them a good feeling. He's a God's gardener of vocabulary. Uh, in a way, yes, he's a God's gardener <laughs> of vocabulary, well put. The gardeners don't like writing anything down permanently because it could be used as evidence against them. Mm-hmm. So they themselves go in for disappearing words. Mm-hmm. They ha- they Their children write on slates, which are then rubbed off. So Amanda's practice of having uh, words disappear is another another way of treating words as vanishing. Uh, Jimmy knows they're vanishing. He's trying to save them. The guard, God's gardeners are, are suspicious of, of having words that don't vanish. And Amanda makes that whole process into art, the vanishing word. Well, this is an interesting uh theme for a, a writer who, who's written more than 40 books. Do you have a, a problem with words? or I don't have a problem with words, but I do have a problem with forms of permanence. Hmm. I always come back to John Kate saying, my name is read on water. Well, the whole idea of writing on water, you know, mm-hmm. it's such an amazing thing. Of course, he he wasn't right. No. <laughs> he, was, he was wrong. He we'll remember right, John Keats but, for a long time. But, but he believed he was right. So here was this man who was dying, saying, in effect, everything that I've done is going to vanish and it's useless. And it's counted, my life is counted for nothing. He happened to be wrong, but the way he put it, my name is writ on water, um, it's always been very evocative for me. And it, it's like those sand paintings, mm. you know, Tibetan sand paintings. You make them and then they're gone. So what is it that is recreated? What is recreated is the form, or possibly what is recreated is people's memory of watching that event. Mm -hmm. We have um, words in books. We think those are permanent. Mm. Think again. Think of the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria in which uh, so much ancient literature was lost. Or think of, think of the rediscovery of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which nobody knew about till they started putting these tablets together. So things, things are there, then they're not there, then maybe they're there again. Uh, but if you think that just because it's written in a book, it's going to be permanent, have another thought about that. Mm, I I just think of all the stuff that's lost on three and a half inch floppy disks that nobody can read anymore. <laughs> it's probably many novels. Yeah, there is that problem, mm, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody foresaw that. Right, with the media media access, the access to just read what we've written is no longer as apparent as it was on a piece of paper. I think there are specialists who will take mm-hmm. those floppy disks and translate them for you. Oh yeah, no, they they're there, but. It's it's getting dicier every day. I can see a library of Alexandria of, of unused well, and unreadable media. Really scary thing to you, which is if there's a big outflare of sunspots, mm. it may just wipe everybody's <laughs> everybody's e data just like that. One of the things that that um, is is I think surprising and really fun in this book is that the the year of the flood is the climax, which is. Uh, 
after a lot of kind of layering plot, you, you give us a really great uh, classic kind of assault on precinct 13 style uh, standoff. The, and the a, car and chase only on foot. Yeah, the, the Western, and there's a real Western feel. In fact, uh, the uh, the buildings where they're, where they're, where this takes place are mentioned as being Western. Were you uh, thinking of Westerns and standoffs and, you know, the classic assault? Uh, well, there's a couple of episodes, uh, but I wasn't thinking so much of Westerns because in Westerns there's always the the cowering townspeople mm-hmm. hiding behind the dry goods counter. <laughs> and you think, well, why aren't you out there? <laughs> you put them <laughs> out there. This, why are you letting this guy in the white hat and the guy in the black hat shoot it out? You know what? Why are you all cowering behind the dry goods counter? So in my story, actually, those people cowering behind the dry goods counter aren't there. And the it's the women who strike out the weapons and, and go after the bad guys. Well, the bad guys have weapons. Mm. So it's a question of who first. Mm. One of the things I think that's interesting in this, one of the notions I like in this book is that um, you, you talk about uh, Noah's Ark and then you talk about DNA. And, and there's the suggestion that you know DNA uh, knowledge makes Noah's Ark feasible, doesn't it? Guess what they're doing at MIT right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing it's uh, Noah's Ark and uh, electronic of. transcription, eh? They're, they're, they're coding the DNA for all of the animals that they can code the DNA for. Well, that's Noah's Ark right there. Right there. Yes, right there indeed. And, of course, one of the far distant ideas that somebody's had is, well, okay, maybe you could use this to reconstitute the animal in some way. Mm-hmm. They are trying to. I don't think they have enough bits of the thylacine in in uh, Australia left to do it. But uh, there are some schemes for reconstituting the thylacine. I think it would be pretty hard. There are some schemes afoot for making some more mammoths. Mm. So Jurassic Park, you know, not so far, <laughs> not so far afield. Not so science fictiony as we might prefer it to be. I don't think anybody has yet decided that they're going to grow a T-Rex. But the idea of reconstituting an animal, it's not that that far away. Now, as a writer, you're, you know, part of this world. You're you're working on books that, you know, take the science of this world and kind of recast this world. Just push it a bit further. Push it a bit further. You, You push it. How do you... With all the, you know, the discoveries on every front, how do you cherry pick what you want to use to push your characters and plots into places that entertain you as a writer? I have a couple of big cardboard boxes. <laughs> they're, they're full of clippings or stuff that I have uh, downloaded. And what they're there for really is if somebody says, Margaret, you are so weird, how could you have invented something like this? I'd like to be able to reach into my cardboard box and say, don't blame me, here it is. Here's what they're working on. This is already in existence, those kinds of things. But you collect a lot of this stuff just just as you go through things. You strike your fancy, they catch your eye. And, um, and then someday it might come in useful. There are things that, that I don't, use much or mm-hmm. have not a lot of 
wouldn't know how to work them into a plot. For instance, the 11 dimensions of space, those would be far-out science fiction plot-driving devices. Well, Physi- let's talk advanced, about... Advanced physics, uh, the fly. Mm. You know the fly? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. so disassemble the atoms, re- put them into another box. Woody Allen wrote a skit on that, which is quite funny. Mm. It's the one in which um, the machine, instead of transporting you from one place to another puts you into a novel of your choice. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Some guy gets into Madame Bovary just before she meets her first lover and they have a fine time, but then she wants to come to New York and go shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, all of these beam-me-up Scotty types of things, uh, those rely on and draw from quantum physics. Mm. But there's not much of that in my books because that's not the world that I'm writing about. You you have a, a, an interesting relationship to the science fiction genre. Oh, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Well, I, I, I grew up in it. Cause you I, did? Well, really? sure. That was the age of Bug-Eyed Monsters and Flash Gordon mm. and Weird Magazine and Weird Tales Magazine and... Uh, that what they now call the golden age of Conan the Conqueror and Heinlein and uh, he came a bit later. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm I'm thinking what was lying around when I was a child. Oh really? Oh, so you got weird tales and uh, oh boy, Conan and Lovecraft. Yeah, those things were around, but Mm -hmm. of course in the cellar were all of H.G. Wells Mm -hmm. and um, writer Haggard Shee and. I must have read 1984 about the time it came out, to tell you the truth. Really? Well, sure. I'm pretty mm. old. Mm. And Brave New World was also freely available. And, and I read a number of other ones that might not spring to mind, like Penguin Island, which is a satire on all of that, and, and R-U-R, you know, the first... Oh, Rossum's ro- Universal Robots. Yeah, the, the first robot Carl tale. Carl and the, the War with the Newts. Mm. Remember it? yeah. So this stuff was just part of the vocabulary, and it was just there, mm. just there. It was just around. We all knew about kryptonite as kids. <laughs> 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 Batman and Superman made a comeback much later, but we were there mm-hmm. on the ground floor along with some other people you may not remember, like Plastic Man. Oh, Plastic Man. There's a great kink song about the Plastic Man. Well, it's more recent. Oh, really? The Fantastic Four mm. had not been invented yet. They mm-hmm. were to come. And I was happy to see a Wolverine movie lately and to learn that Wolverine, this is the one who's got things shooting out of his fingers when he wants to have them. Mm-hmm. He's a Canadian. He's <laughs> <laughs> also quite a hunk. Um, anyway... So this is just, it was just there. Mm-hmm. And John Wyndham, do you know his oh, work Oh, sure, Day of the Triffids. I, I well, saw... more pertinently, Death of Grass. Oh, yeah. And another little story, which is a short story called Consider Her Ways, mm. which is about a woman who wakes up to find herself in the future and all of the men are dead. Mm. So what happens then? Okay, so also earlier ones that people may not know about, like, W.H. Hudson's uh, Glass World, earlier utopias and dystopias, A Purple Cloud, The mm. Purple Cloud, it's a turn of the century. M.P. Scheel, is it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. wipes out everybody. So I just, I just knew it, and I was doing my, uh, before I wandered off into another 
life when I was a graduate student. I mm-hmm. was working on the the nineteenth century strange romance. Uh, Scientific so, romance. Well, not mm-hmm. quite. I was really working on the th- thread that runs from MacDonald through to Tolkien. Mm, okay. So not exactly science fiction. More on the fantasy side. More on the side of... Um, William Hope Hodgson and, and some... More on the fantasy side, ah. but some somebody said, well, that's what happened to Anglicanism when they removed the real presence from the, <laughs> from the mass. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of... It's, it's the it's the world where Victorian fairies come together with with Darwin, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's now that's very interesting. Now, um, well, she is very Darwinian. Mm. H. Ryder Haggard's she. Oh, really? That, yeah, I did my early work on on she. Very, that's fascinating. Isn't that weird. Yeah, that's not something. Uh, somebody uh, talks about the uh, the thousand romances that lie in the origin of species. Yeah, well, that was one of them. <laughs> Pretty Darwinian. She. And, and, and this by is the as way, well. You, you might be interested to know that everybody read she of that generation, mm-hmm. including Tolkien. Oh, really? And in Lord of the Rings, she has split into two parts. And you can trace it, you know, practically word for word. Oh, wow. Uh, she in Ryder Haggard is a very long-lived, extremely beautiful woman who who lives in caverns and has deadly powers. Uh, but she also has a predictive mirror. You can look into it and see your future and mm-hmm. where you are and where other people are in space-time. Okay, so that beautiful woman, beautiful, powerful woman with the predictive mirror turned into Galadriel. Mm-hmm. And the deadly thing lurking in the caverns turned into... Gollum? And no. Sora? No, no. Think female. You'll have to tell me. Think... S H E. She lob the giant oh, spider. Oh, oh, yeah. right, right, right. Okay. It's even got the same name. <laughs> oh, wow. Different last name, but right first name. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so divided into two. Mm. Anyway, lots of these factoids are still in my head. You've sometimes described science fiction as being about space squids and talking cabbages. You come perilously close to talking cabbages in this book. Sort of, yeah. They don't talk. What <laughs> they don't talk. It, one thing I say about Planet X is it's where Milton went uh, after Milton. Mm. It's where Milton went when you could no longer write Paradise Lost, when you could no longer have angels with flaming swords, uh, when you couldn't have the burning bush that speaks. You know, all of those really quite science fiction things mm-hmm. that are in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So the last great epic along those lines was Milton. And then came the 18th century, and you somehow couldn't do that anymore. The closest you could get was William Blake. Uh, So those things that we used to just believe in all the time went to Planet X, where they are alive and well. (laughs) Well, I can't have them in realistic novels or realistic literature on the earth anymore unless you make it a vision unless you make it a dream or nightmare, or unless the person is on drugs or else has a mental condition of some kind that's causing them to hallucinate. One of the things uh, uh, that uh, a local author here, Karen Joy Fowler, has said is that mimetic fiction Mm. is no longer adequate 
to describe a world where Arnold Schwarzenegger is the governor of California. <laughs> yeah, but people could just as easily have said that about King George III. You know? <laughs> so there have been many instances in which improbable people have been rulers, like a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be a... Um, a constant theme in human history that either improbable people become rulers because they inherit or or get elected uh, and seem okay at the beginning, and then they something happens. Henry VIII, for instance, was 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 a pretty um, I hesitate to use the word normal because he was a prince, but <laughs> uh, and he had a lot of power, but. He seems to have been much better behaved towards the beginning of his life than he was towards the end. Mm. So you get power, and then, of course, your main problem becomes, how do I keep the power? And this is by executing those you don't like. By executing those you think are going to get the power away from you. Mm. You may like them perfectly well, (laughs) but they're a threat. when I was first reading science fiction, it was 1968, 70, you know, and, and I remember reading 2001, and I bought the, all the issues of Life and Look that had all the pictures from making the movie, and I said, boy, this is the way 2001 is going to look. Is that what you thought? <laughs> well, I mean, this is the best predictive minds of the time. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke was a noted science fiction writer who had actually invented something in science fiction, the communications satellite. And, yeah. and now here we are in past, way past 2001, and it's, I think, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson best described it, we're living in a bad science fiction novel, unfortunately. There are good things in it. Mm-hmm. There are actually some good science things being done right now. I uh, read the other day that they've now invented a carbon harvester that is way more efficient than trees. Really? Yes. Somebody's going to make a mint off that if that uh, proves to be the case. Yeah, but who's going to pay for it? Uh, Well, uh, Steorn, the people who invented free energy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Assuming that the free energy thing really works out, which is unlikely, but... You never know. You never know. Um, The people inventing solar fabrics, Mm -hmm. solar blankets, the solar um, made out of little tubes and bubbles. They get the sun's rays from any angle. They're much more efficient than panels. You could put them vertically on buildings and make your building into its own generator, just for instance. Um, Some of the gene splicing that they're doing for more efficient plants, uh, some of it, of course, hasn't worked. They've tried to build in pesticides into some of these crops, and, of course, what happens is what usually happens with insects they can reproduce a lot more quickly and um, efficiently than we can, so it kills the first crop all except a few who then breed and make more resistant insects, and pretty soon you get insects who actually like the stuff, and that's what we've got now. Mm. Uh, So a lot of it is trial and error. It's just that nature doesn't give you a second chance. Nature itself does not go in a lot for second chances. You fall off the cliff once, law of physics takes over. Mm. You don't get another chance to try falling off the cliff <laughs> a different way. Well, you make an interesting comment here, too, in the novel about the speed of uh, the pace of change. Exactly. Well, Look, it's just true. 
which is that if you touch your head to a wall, it's nothing. But if you your head hits the wall at 400 miles an hour, it's red paint. No more head. No more head. <laughs> Could you talk about, you've written these two books, um, and, and I have to say that the end of the second book begs the end of a third book, having read the first book. <laughs> All right. Well, the end of each book should have the reader asking him or herself, what would I do? Mm. So end of Oryx and Craig, Jimmy is confronted with this group in the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look kind of dangerous, but they're other human beings. So what does he do? Does he step into the opening and say, let's make friends? Does he shoot them while he has a chance? What's he going to do? What would you do? Me? Um, Hands up. Let's see what you got. (laughs) (laughs) I won't shoot. There's (laughs) there's three of them and only one of you. Yeah. Hands up. Let's see what you got. Drop them. You're feeling a bit um, weird anyway because you've got an infected foot. And, And you're wearing a sheet. Yeah, he's taken the shade off. He's actually <laughs> bare naked at that point, except he's still got his ha- his baseball cap on. A, we- you, a strange sight. Ha- yeah. Have you have you uh, thought about it? The third book? Are you into it? Are, are are you when you're writing these books? How much are you living in this world, and how much are you living in the world of the books? By this world, you mean the one we're sitting in right now. That we're sitting in right now. I think it's always a double life. Mm. It's always a double life. It's annoying to other people, I admit that. They say, did you hear what I just said? (laughs) (laughs) Repeat what I just said. They do that. Mm. Uh, I think it's better to be a novelist in that respect than to be a poet, however, because poets spend a lot of time looking out of the window, Mm. whereas novelists can at least appear to be busily at work. Mm. You can see them working. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you anticipate a third book soon? I never anticipate anything because you never what, know what's going to come out of you, mm-hmm. out at you from the woodwork when you least expect it. So I don't anticipate, but I consider. Mm. Do I consider? I'm considering. Consider well. A lot of readers are... <laughs> even as we think. Well, you can vote. Human race, yes or no? Uh, human race? Uh, You're not I, I kinda, too sure. <laughs> I kind of like the Krakers, really. <laughs> you like them. Well, yeah. I think you'd find them rather tedious company. Mm, yes. And, and, yeah. It's, uh, they're, too, they're too good for you. They're too... Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> not hard. They're, they're too good for me. <laughs> Yes, we 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 tend to be a little bit more. Um, we lead more complex emotional lives than they appear to lead. Mm-hmm. And I like my complex emotional life. How about so you? So I think you're saying human race. Yes. I guess I'm going to go with the human race then. <laughs> so long as that one wise, the- <laughs> wise choice <laughs> on your part. <laughs> I've been speaking with a member of the human race. Her name is Margaret Atwood. Are you sure? Well, I haven't got the gene, the genetic data, but I'm going to presume <laughs> by virtue of the book she wrote, which seems full of humanity and full of life. Uh, her latest novel is The Year of the Flood. Thank you for joining me, Margaret. A pleasure.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.